Hello, and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct, and a craftful life. Welcome to everyone who has tuned in, whether you are a new or a returning listener. You are most welcome here, and thank you for choosing to spend some time with me. I'm aware that there are lots of calls on our time, and many, many podcasts, so I really appreciate everybody who listens in. As things feel quite odd here at the moment in the UK for a mix of reasons, I thought I would pop on for a chat and maybe offer a little escape from reality if life is feeling as surreal and strange where you are too. To anyone who is new here, I'm Meg and I live in the UK in what is normally a bustling capital, but what this past year has become an eerily quiet city. In my podcast, I muse about my making life. As well as talking about what I make, I also like to delve into the why and wherefore of the materials and the processes, and tease out some of the environmental, ethical and psychological considerations involved in my creative practices. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and anything I mention in the podcast will be in the show notes, which are at mrsmcuriositycabinet.com. And if you are interested in my ceramic journey, the best place to follow me is at megroper.com or the Instagram account at m.r.keramic, which is K-E-R-A-M-I-K. So what do I have in store today? I thought I would focus on a recently finished cardigan that I'm quite excited about. I'll share some hand sewing that's been keeping me busy and also talk about some of the sampling I've been doing in the pottery studio. So I hope you have a warm drink or a seasonal tipple to hand and let's begin. I recently finished a cardi that has technically been in the works for six months but in terms of hands-on time only took a fraction of that time. I'm generally a pretty monogamous knitter, but this cardigan fell into a slightly different category. Once I had knit the body and sleeves, it needed a bit of time to prove before moving on to the finishing touches. Let me introduce you to my harebell cardigan, a fitted cardigan with a lace front bodice in a warm rosehip colour. Technically, this slow-proved cardigan is a self-designed garment. I mentioned on Instagram that I have quite involved views around the term self-designed, which I can probably attribute to a tangle of factors. The key reason is that I grew up in a setting where making in various forms was a norm, but where jobs or a career in this sphere just weren't part of my purview, although art, craft and design were things we actively appreciated. In this context, it feels a little odd, presumptuous, pompous even, to use a phrase self-designed for a cardigan that I basically worked up from scratch. Even though I may feel a little awkward about using the term self-designed, I thoroughly enjoyed the process. Whereas most of my cardigans are cosy, woolen-spun affairs, the harebell cardigan falls into a smarter, dressier category. I had planned this garment at the start of the year as I wanted to add a slightly more feminine cardigan to my wardrobe, Something that would dress up my simple shift dresses and lift the mood on the days when my body is not playing wool. And I knew exactly which wool I would use. Back in February, I attended Unravel Festival, a yarn festival held in a converted malt house in Farnham in Surrey, which is to the southwest of London. And I visited Kettle Yarn Co. stand with a specific purchase in mind. 
three skeins of her Northium fingering weight wool in the aptly named rosehip colour. Northium is a non-superwashed, worsted-spun, blue-faced Leicester wool, and I have to say it's the softest, most luxurious BFL I've ever come across. It manages to combine drape and stitch definition gloriously, and despite its softness, it wears incredibly well. I've knit a garment with this yarn before, in particular my Belmont cardigan designed by Gudrun Johnston from her second The Shetland Trader book. This cardi, with its intriguing rhythmic lace pattern, is my only other dressy knit, and the garment I've received most compliments for, not just from knitters, but from people who don't even know that I knit. My Belmont cardigan has felted in the armpit area, which is par for the course for me for well-fitted garments, but other than that, the pilling is minimal after two years of regular wear. I know that many like the novelty of trying lots of different wools, but in light of Northium's credentials, I didn't think twice about using this yarn again for another smart cardigan, as I like my knits to have longevity. Just as I'm happy to go with tried and tested yarn, I also went with a shape that I know works for me. A reasonably fitted, short cardigan, i.e. one that sits just below the waist, with sleeves that are set in and knit top down. A roundish neckline that sits lower than a crew neck to reveal a hint of the collarbone, and lace on the front body. As I was designing this pattern from scratch, I didn't want an overly complicated lace, partly because even in my dressier garments I tend towards restrained, but mostly because I knew it would be easier to manage the arithmetic with a lace repeat that runs over a limited number of stitches and rows. I leafed through my Barbara Walker stitch dictionaries and settled on the harebell lace pattern. As the name suggests, the pattern resembles a bell flower and has a 1930s-40s feel to me. It's feminine without being overly girly, and proportion-wise it works really well with a fine four-ply yarn. After swatching and crunching the numbers, I cast on for the hem. As this was going to be a smart cardigan, I didn't cut corners on the ribbing. I went with a tubular rib cast-on, which is well worth the extra effort, and a deep band of one-by-one rib, with the knit stitches on the right side and the purl stitches on the wrong side, worked through the back of the loop to get a neat, evenly tensioned rib. I pulled out one of my cosy cardigans in my go-to shape and mirrored the shape more or less. As most of my cosy cardigans are made with double-knit wool, I obviously needed more rows to achieve a similar length, and I had to decrease more stitches over more rows to achieve a similar armhole shape. But thanks to having a detailed swatch over both lace and stocking stitch, it was relatively simple to work out the numbers. And I just kept checking my work against a cardigan with the desired shape. As I knit the body in one piece, and as the wool is quite drapey, I decided to finish off the top of the body with a three-needle cast-off to create a strong seam at the shoulder from which the body fabric would hang. The three-needle cast-off technique is exactly what it sounds like. It's based on the classic method of working two stitches and then pulling the first stitch on the right needle over the second one. The only difference is that you hold the right sides of both the front and back shoulder fabric together and knit one stitch from each needle together when knitting the stitch before you cast it off. For the sleeves, I picked up stitches around the arm side and built up the sleeve cap top down by working short rows with wraps and turns. 
This is very much my preferred way of knitting sleeves, so I had a fairly good idea of where to start the short rows and how far down the arm side to work them. The only thing I needed to work out was how many stitches to pick up for the arm side. For this I picked up each stitch that I'd cast off at the underarm. A stitch in each decrease row that formed the curve of the arm side and then a stitch in three out of the every four rows on the vertical between the end of the curve and the shoulder seam. This ratio of three to four is not some magic immutable number but rather based on my tension swatch. I looked at the ratio of the number of stitches to the number of rows. To avoid pulling or bunching around the armhole, I knew I would need 4 inches worth of stitches for every 4 inches of vertical fabric, which worked out at approximately 3 stitches to every 4 rows. As I mentioned earlier, it didn't take me particularly long to knit the body and sleeves, mostly because the wool is exquisite to knit with and the lace pattern was delightfully stimulating. The proving time between the bulk of the body and the neck and bottom bands was due to paralysis about some design choices. How would I work these bands? How wide would they be? And what finishing techniques would I use? Would it be an eye cord cast off at the neck or would it be a ribbed neck band? And how to finish any ribbing along the neck and bottom bands? And where to place the buttonholes? I used the tubular cast on and cast off techniques at the hem and the wrists, but for the button bands and neck bands I settled on a shallow ribbing with an eye cord cast off. And on the button bands I decided to integrate the buttonholes into the eye cord. I had first used this technique on the Tanach cardigan by Kate Davis that I knit earlier this year and I was really pleased with the finish it produced. Also, as the northern wool is quite drapey, I decided eye cords were a good choice as they added a little bit of definition and integrity to the edges. And the button placement? Well, as the arithmetic didn't really work to space 9 or 10 buttons evenly over the number of stitches I had, I dodged the issue by spacing the buttons in pairs. This allowed me to have buttons at the critical bust apex and also added an unusual detail to the overall design. I'm thrilled to bits with the design and finish of the cardigan. It's not a novel design in any way, but it's incredibly satisfying to work a garment up from scratch, make considered decisions at every step and end up with a cardigan that is pretty close to what I had envisaged. It has also emboldened me to make what I feel works for me, follow my instincts to go off piece with patterns and design more items from scratch to meet my practical and bodily requirements. Before I move on, I'd like to say something about the colour, which contributes in no small part to the beauty of this cardigan. Not my aesthetic choice of the colour, which, as I explored in my previous podcast episode, is ultimately purely a personal matter but rather the quality of the colour. In both my Belmont cardigan, which I knit in the amber shade, and this cardigan in the rosehip one, the colour is quite mesmerising. It shifts slightly from rich and earthy to practically luminescent, depending on the cast of the light. We talk about blue-faced Leicester being a luster breed, and you can really see that in this wool. I would love it if Linda would extend the range of colours that this yarn comes in. 
I know it takes a lot of time and effort to develop colours, but the quality of this wool is so good and the luster so tantalisingly beautiful that I think there is such scope to play to those strengths. So Linda, if you are listening and you want any suggestions, I think a smoky taupe topaz would look incredibly elegant on this base, as would a rich deep damson. For completeness, I should mention cost. Northern 4-ply comes in 100 gram skeins, which give you 400 metres or approximately 440 yards of wool, and it currently costs £19 per skein. That is obviously not a trivial amount of money, but neither is it off the scale, and in light of the luxurious handle of the wool, its luster and how it wears, I think it's a very fair price for a wool of this quality. Like many, I find the dark months of winter a challenge, and this year I've definitely felt more in the doldrums than usual. To ease the melancholy and frustration of struggling to build any kind of momentum, I decided to take a break from the challenges of my winter coat project and sew a new dress instead. As I needed an easy win, I decided to make a tried and tested trapeze dress out of some heavy linen in a cheerful deep rust colour. Merchant and Mill's trapeze dress is a go-to pattern for me for several reasons. For one, it's an incredibly practical dress, but still, uncannily, manages to look pleasing on the eye, rather than just like a shapeless bag. It also manages to strike a good balance of fullness around the hips and legs to allow me to move easily without getting tangled in an excess of fabric. It is a comfortable dress for crouching and lunging in the garden, sitting at the pottery wheel when turning pots, practising the cello, and importantly, not feeling constricted when I lie down for afternoon naps. The trapeze dress also carries me through most seasons. I layer it for winter and autumn with roll neck t-shirts, tights, leggings and cardigans, and wear it with leggings and a lightweight cardigan or an overshirt in spring and summer. And as I tend to make the sleeveless version in plain fabrics, it's also very fabric efficient. Even in my size, I can squeeze a dress out of one and a half metres or five foot of wide fabric. In this case, some merchant and mill linen in the patch colour. Of course, me being me, my latest iteration of the trapeze dress did not turn out to be the quick endorphin boosting achievement I was expecting. At 225 grams per square metre, or 6.5 ounces, this linen is reasonably weighty. I therefore decided that I would bind the neck and armholes rather than attach a facing. This would normally have made the dress an even faster make, but there was a finishing to consider, which needed to be done before binding the neck and armholes. I typically use the Hong Kong binding method to finish my linen garments, using bias binding made from muslin or lawn. However, I decided against it in this case, partly because I was out of cotton lawn after all the mask making I did this autumn, but mostly because I thought the combined weight of the linen and the layers of lawn would make the seams quite bulky. So instead, I decided I would use felled seams. Not the felled seams that you get on jeans where you trim one of the seam allowances and fold the wider seam allowance over it to encase it and then stitch it in place with a parallel line of machine stitching. No, I wanted felled seams that would be invisible on the right side of the dress. So I pressed over my seams, 
turned the seam allowance under as if to make a small hem and then proceeded to hand fell the seams with an invisible whip stitch. In other words, I turned my easy win into hours of hand stitching and bizarrely, this has actually worked wonders for my mood. I love hand sewing. I tend to use it for hemming and sewing down the waist facings and neck and armhole binding. This, though, was the first time I decided to hand fell seams, and at about six to eight stitches per inch, that meant a lot of sewing, or rather hours of methodical, focused, repetitive stitching. I'm very happy to sacrifice speed for the knowledge that a garment looks good on the inside as well as the outside. It's partly a rebellion against fast fashion, but mostly it's about something much more personal. Some might call it an act of self-care, but I think it's more a case of being true to myself and living and working in a way that makes sense to me. For me, and this is totally a personal thing, considered and conscientious finishing is an act of respect. Respect for the cloth, the finished garment, my developing skills, the craft and many generations of home seamstresses who have preceded me, my body and my values. As I was slowly whip-stitching the seam allowances, two things struck me. First, the hardest thing about hand-felling seams, even with my achy joints, is not the movement of the hands, but the strain on the eyes. Hand-hemming a skirt or dress on a summer's evening, when there is still plenty of natural light, is a breeze. Sewing by synthetic light, particularly when the thread is as close as possible to the fabric colour to achieve invisible stitches, is exhausting so this sewing has to happen in small pockets of time. This awareness of the impact of artificial light on my hand sewing got me thinking about all the generations of women who, down the centuries, had no choice but to sew by candle or gaslight after completing all the other chores of the day, just to clothe their family. Or how there are still workers around the globe stitching garments at home in poorly lit conditions up against a deadline to put food on the table. In the words of my mother, I don't know I'm born to have the luxury of choosing to hand finish my own clothes, even if doing so by artificial light in winter is mildly inconvenient. The other realisation I had while I was hand felling the seams is how fell seams give a very different structural feel to the garment compared to bound ones, let alone pinked ones. The thin strip of three layers of cloth combined with the strength from tiny stitches almost reinforced the structure of the garment. I have talked about dressmaking in terms of engineering before and hand felling is no different. Encasing the raw seams this way has added subtle invisible girders to the shoulders and internal buttresses to the backbone and sides of the dress. And these invisible fabric reinforcements are a timely metaphor that helped my mood no end. Much of my frustration in recent months has been due to the struggle to build any kind of momentum when my body won't play ball. Rationally, I know that the only way to live and work is to pace myself and my output, to work within the boundaries of my body. My head also tells me that slow considered work is entirely in line with my values and concerns about planetary boundaries. But I'm only human and there is a massive difference between rationally knowing something and feeling and living it. All the more so when our defences are battered, 
or when we see others achieving astonishing levels of productivity, which invariably happens in the run-up to Christmas and year-end, and when the tools and platforms we use to share our work actively encourage and reward a high level of churn. When I tried on the half-finished dress, I felt strangely emboldened, though, by these invisible internal buttresses, which derived their strengths precisely because of their slow method of production. They had become an almost tangible reminder that it's perfectly okay to march to the beat of my own slow drum, no matter how odd or out of step that might feel. I've not only been exploring new things in my knitting and sewing, there has also been a fair amount of prototyping and sampling going on in the pottery studio. Supply chain issues with my lovely brown clay and the slow recovery from a back spasm and a sprained ankle have meant I've had to ration my time at the pottery wheel. Although this has been frustrating, it's also been the catalyst to focus on other skills and to start to bring some ideas that only existed in my sketchbooks to life through the technique of slab building. I learnt this technique several years ago as part of my general pottery courses and whilst I've doubled with it occasionally, I've never made it the main part of my practice. Partly because throwing was pretty intuitive and comfortable for me, but mostly because I struggled to live with the inevitable ugly interim drafts that go with slab building. However, the enforced break from the pottery wheel meant I could either sulk at what I couldn't do or use this time as an opportunity to push through my awkward relationship with hand building. As is so often the case with my procrastination, once I got going, I not only enjoyed the process, but really loved the opportunities that slab building opens up to explore different stories, textures and emotions through the medium of clay. By way of explanation, if real throwing is similar to extruding a shape out of a lump of clay, you can think of slab building as cutting flat sheets and welding them together with a clay slurry. Although I will always love the dynamics and ergonomics of throwing, slab building is definitely tapping into various parts of my creative brain that aren't activated by real throwing, the analytical and almost engineering part of the brain. As well as coming up with the concepts and general aesthetic, slab building involves thinking through the constituent parts of each object, the sequence of construction, the possibilities and limitations involved in each shape and sequence, and the bottlenecks in the process where clay needs to be carefully managed. As well as being satisfyingly hands-on, this technique really appeals to the problem-solving and system development part of my brain. As I tidied up my studio for Christmas, I had a handful of unfired prototypes and samples of Neolithic and Brutalist-inspired storage vessels to show for my time. A range of jars that looked like standing stones, some with lids integrated into the shape, and some with built-up lids which made them look more like canopic jars. Not a massive output in objective terms, but individually and collectively, they represent a significant step into the unknown. Definitely a deepening of my practical skill set, an extension of my visual vocabulary, and the important first few steps on my sculptural journey. A path I'd always intended to include, but the circumstances had nudged me on too sooner than expected. And with all of this, there was also the driving out of a fair few demons. I mentioned before that I have an awkward relationship with the term self-designed. I know that sounds strange in the context of somebody who is developing ranges of ceramic ware, 
That paradox is most certainly not lost on me. In fact, in the past year, I've experienced many confusing and confronting creative impulses and challenges, and I'm just figuring them out as I go along. A complex and mucky emotional process, which probably explains why I've been both creatively fired up and absolutely shattered for much of this year. On the one hand, I feel frustratingly underskilled for the path I'm forging. Leaving aside the adult education courses I've been taking in recent years, my visual arts training came to a shuddering halt at the age of about seven or eight, when my primary school teacher told me that I couldn't draw and that I should just stick to languages and maths. On the other hand, I'm aware that I have many other experiences and tools in my armoury that I can draw on and which will inform both my aesthetic direction and style as well as my practical processes. One of the challenges I've been struggling with is how much of my work to share and when. I strongly believe that it's okay not to share everything on social media and that there is a freedom in exploring things behind the scenes. I'm also aware of the importance of critique and feedback, which doesn't happen when we're working in splendid isolation. Then there is the practical reality that, from a marketing perspective, it makes sense to share the creative process and the different phases of our work. It allows us to market test ideas, but also, importantly, build a relationship with our audience and potential buyers. In the art and craft sectors, individuals don't just invest in an object. They are choosing to support the person and the processes that went into that crafted object. I know all of this rationally, of course, but it has taken a lot of procrastination and mulling things over before I had the courage to post any of my recent ceramic works in progress. At first, this seemed annoyingly incongruous to me. I very happily share my knitting works in progress, and I have no qualms about sharing my sewing, complete with the flawed early 12 stages. But sharing work in progress from a new body of ceramic work, that involved plucking up some serious courage. I thought at first it might simply be because my ceramics are visual work and I'm on shaky ground in light of my limited background in visual arts. But that doesn't really tally with the willingness to share my fibre and textile making. I suspect the wariness and insecurity are more due to the fact that my ceramic practice is a form of work. Although there is obviously an element of working things up from scratch, I'm definitely more in a design mindset when I'm working with clay, trying to achieve more than just a functional object in a vaguely pleasing form. In many ways, my wariness about sharing ceramic work from its inception and preference to wait until I have a well-developed first, second or third draft is completely in keeping with the way I've always worked. In previous careers where words were my medium, I would refine and polish my work before I sent a first draft to a superior, let alone a client. In podcasting, blogging and pamphlet writing, I am the same. I don't hit publish until I know that the product is of a quality that I'm happy to share. In this context, I suppose, my wariness about sharing ceramic work in progress is totally understandable. One of the many things I've realised in the past year, and acutely so in recent months, is that the instinct to share work at various phases of the process is a muscle. It's a skill like any other that doesn't just exist but needs to be developed and practised. Just as I'm developing substantive pottery skills as well as an eye for styling and photography. Well that's probably more than enough self-reflection for one episode. 
I know it's exposing to talk about our insecurities and the messy dynamics of the creative process, let alone of how to build a livelihood based on creative work. It's so much safer to stick to practical nuts and bolts. But I wanted to touch upon these aspects of my making life and creative decisions precisely because pretty much any creative work involves a degree of unease and questioning and because it's something we don't talk about enough. I would love to hear what personal creative gremlins you've had to face down, what you've struggled with and how you've confronted challenges in your creative life. Please do leave a comment, whether on the blog post or the Instagram post accompanying this podcast. Or if you would prefer to share things privately, you can always send me a message via Instagram or on email at meg at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. All that remains now is for me to thank you for all your support and encouragement over the past 12 months. Thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast, commented on blog or Instagram posts, shared my work, sent me kind words and thoughts after my cat Dante died, supported and encouraged my ceramic business, and so on. I wish you all a healthy, contented and much less turbulent 2021. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.